Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 53. After a break of almost two months, we are finally back in our study through the Gospel of John. I feel like singing, reunited, and it feels so good. And yet I feel strange because I have for you this morning a non-biblical but not unbiblical message. That's because the story from our text for today is strictly speaking a non-biblical but not unbiblical story. So if that hasn't caught your attention, I don't know what else Will let me explain then what I mean, why I'm saying this. In my Bible, John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, is bracketed. And it has a big footnote that directs you to the, to the bottom of the page. I'm guessing that if you look now, your Bible has something similar to that. It may not be a bracket, but it will have something that designates a note about this passage. Almost all translations of the Bible today will distinguish this passage in some sort of way. Some of them even omit it and go straight from John chapter 7, verse 52 to John chapter 8, verse 12. Now keep in mind that chapters and verses were not originally a part of the Bible. They were added later by translators of the Bible for our benefit. And aren't you thankful for that? I can stand up this morning and say, turn to John chapter 7, verse 53, instead of saying, why don't you turn over about... 38% of the way through John, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Well, why is this text singled out in this way? If you have a, a footnote or an endnote or study notes, look at whatever you have says. My footnote at the bottom of the page reads like this. Other MSS omit bracketed text. MSS there stands for manuscript, so it would be meant for us to read it this way. Other manuscripts omit the bracketed text, and here the bracketed text is John 7.53 through John 8 verse 11. Manuscripts are copies of the Bible, or copies of books of the Bible or copies of parts of the books of the Bible that we have in the original languages the Bible was written in. And from these we translate the Bible into other languages. So it would work this way for us in, in an English speaking part of the world. We have copies of the books of the Bible that were written or portions of copies and translators will go to those copies in the original languages. In the Old Testament, it was Hebrew. There's just a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament. 
and in the New Testament it's Greek, and they will go to those original languages and they will translate from them into our language, which is English. It might surprise you to know that we don't have any of the original books of the Bible. We don't have the original gospel that John wrote. We don't have any of the other original books or what might be called autographs of the scripture. Well, think about it, why that would be. The Jews were terribly persecuted. Their, their temple where the scriptures would have been stored were destroyed, was destroyed multiple times. And then for the first 300 years of the existence of the church, they were under terrible persecution from the Roman Empire, and a part of that persecution was to burn the scriptures. But when I say that we don't have any of the originals, I don't want that to lessen your confidence in the Bible. This is not my point at all this morning. In fact, I hope that as the result of what I've said and about to say, that your confidence in the Bible will be strengthened. I don't want this to lessen your confidence that what we're reading, what we're studying week by week is the Word of God. You see... God has always preserved His Word through His people making copies of it. Or what we would call manuscripts. The Jews were religious about doing this. And then in the early generations of the church, the church made up of Jewish Christians, they continued this and Gentile Christians did as well. The originals were copied and copied and copied and then manuscripts or copies were copied and copied and copied and this isn't just how it works for the Bible this is how it has worked with all books from antiquity which we still read for example we don't have Homer's original Iliad or Homer's original Odyssey Nobody does. What we read today when we read those ancient books has been translated from copies and parts or pieces of copies. They've been translated from manuscripts. The only evidence of Homer having written those originals and that they existed. But even though that's the case with the Iliad and the Odyssey, Nobody's questioning whether what we read today when we read them is what Homer actually wrote 800 years before Jesus came. Do you know why no one's questioning whether we're reading what Homer actually wrote? Because of manuscripts. Because of copies. We have an abundance of manuscripts today from which the Bible has been and is translated. Listen to this. We have exponentially more manuscripts of the Bible than exist for any other ancient book. Exponentially more for the Bible than any other ancient book. F.F. F. Bruce, who 
was as significant as any New Testament scholar of the 20th century wrote. Approximately 5,000 Greek manuscripts containing all or part of the New Testament exist. And he wrote that before he died in 1980s. I could now update you and tell you that we have almost 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament. Bruce went on to say there are 8,000 manuscript copies of the Vulgate, which was a Latin translation of the Bible that was done by the church father Jerome in AD 382. And he says that we have more than 350 copies of Syriac or Aramaic versions of the New Testament that go all the way back to the year 150. Besides this, he says virtually the entire New Testament could be reproduced from citations contained in the works of the early church fathers. The church fathers were the generation of church leaders that followed after the apostles and led the church during the early days. What he's saying there is, even if we didn't have any manuscripts of the New Testament, we could reproduce the New Testament simply by borrowing from what we read in those works of the church fathers. They quote the New Testament so much. He says that there are some 32,000 citations from the New Testament in the writings of the church fathers prior to the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. This is interesting. We have copies of the four Gospels, the book of Acts, ten of Paul's letters, Hebrews and Revelation that were done in the early 200s. We have copies of part of the Gospel of John that date all the way back between A.D. 100 and 150. We have parts of the Gospel of Luke that date to the year 175. We have fragments from the Gospel of Matthew that at least one scholar says is from as early as A.D. 70. There is, there's a manuscript of basically the whole Bible that was done by the year 325. And another one of the entire New Testament that was done by the year 350. This says nothing of Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament that we have that were done 600 years before the birth of Christ. This says nothing of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls are almost... 1,000 different manuscripts that were found in the 1940s and 50s by Bedouin shepherds. And these date back to the 3rd century B.C. For comparison's sake, I want you to consider again Homer's Iliad. And I mention it because Outside of the New Testament, when it comes to ancient books, it has more manuscript evidence for it than any other one. It was written in 800 B.C., I said that earlier. And the Iliad, you see, 
was the Bible for the Greeks. Their whole system of religion is explained in it. They looked at it like a Bible. We have today less than 650 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, and some of those are just fragments of it. And the earliest manuscript we have of Homer's Iliad is from the 2nd century A.D., which means that the oldest copy of Homer's Iliad we have was done a thousand years after he wrote the original. Now I want you to compare that to the more than 5,650 New Testament manuscripts that we have. The earliest of those being done less than 100 years after the first one was written. So which ancient book do you think most accurately records the words of the original author? Which ancient book do you then have the most confidence in? And I bring up Homer's Iliad because it's the best of the other ancient books. Some of those that we read and place absolute confidence in have fewer than 10 manuscript copies that exist of them, and they were done more than a 1,000 years after the original work. Well, critics will point out that not all the manuscripts we have read the same way, and that's true. You ever wondered why one translation of the Bible differs from another? Well, sometimes it's for this reason they use different manuscripts. It's important for us to know that the original authors of the Bible were inspired. That means that they were guarded by God from making errors. But we also should know that those who made copies of the Bible were not inspired. Neither were those who translate the Bible. Not even those who translated the King James Version were inspired. These copyists, what would be called scribes, they were human. And humans outside of the inspiration of God, they make mistakes, they make errors. And that may freak you out a little bit. But don't let it. The errors that exist in the manuscripts, the differences between them, the discrepancies between them are minor. Most of them are a word being left out here, a word being added there, a phrase arranged differently here, or out of place there. None of the differences... None of the discrepancies, none of even what we would call errors have anything to do with major doctrine. And they don't alter the message of the Bible or the gospel at all. On top of this, we shouldn't be freaked out by the knowledge that those who copied the Bible made errors every once in a while. The errors and the discrepancies are few and far between. Listen to this. Over 99% of the content of the manuscripts are exactly the same. That's incredible. 
A.T. Robertson was a Southern Baptist pastor, preacher, professor in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and he is considered by most people to be the greatest Greek scholar in the history of the United States. Go Southern Baptist. He says that these errors or discrepancies or differences or concerns with the manuscripts of Scripture represent one one thousandth of a part of the New Testament. Making what we have in our hands 99.9% pure. Pure meaning exactly the same as what was originally written. Now all of that brings us back to the passage that's before us this morning. When I say that it's a non-biblical story and therefore my message is a non-biblical message, I mean that I'm convinced, and I don't say this lightly, I, I mean I say this with fear and trembling, I mean that I'm convinced that it was not part of the original gospel that John wrote, the original book that John wrote, nor was it part of any of the other three original gospels, and because of this it wasn't a part of the original Bible, making it, strictly speaking, non-biblical. It must have been added at a later date by a scribe, by a copyist. Like uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which, by the way, <laughs> is a far more problematic passage for us than this one. You know, that's the one that talks about us showing that we're believers by picking up snakes and drinking poison. Here's why I'm convinced that this was not a part of the original Gospel of John. I'll give you some reasons real quickly. And I'm going to get to the text, I promise. Really, folks, I hope this gives you confidence that what we have is the Word of God. I mean, it is remarkable how our God, against every effort of Satan and the enemies of the people of God, has preserved His Word now for 3,500 years. Reasons I don't think this was in the original Gospel of John. Number one, it's not in any of the earliest manuscripts of John that we have. It only starts showing up, let's say, four to five hundred years later in manuscripts. And when it does, it is marked in those earliest ones that it shows up in with something like what would be in our Bibles, a bracket or a footnote that questions its authenticity. If you've got copies of something, older copies and newer copies of something, I'm talking about handwritten copies, which copies would be more reliable? The newer ones or the older ones? Well, the older ones would. Think about it this way. Let's say that you had in your possession a copy of a letter that your great-great-great-great-grandfather wrote to your great-great-great-great-grandmother 
before they were married, asking her for her hand in marriage. And the original didn't exist any longer, but it had been copied down through the generations in your family. And the copy that you have was copied by your grandmother from an earlier copy. And you've had that copy that's done by your grandmother for, for years. But all of a sudden, someone in the family at the old home place discovers a copy that wasn't done by your grandmother, but by your great-great-grandmother. And there were differences between the copy that you had always had done by your grandmother and the one that you had now found that had been done two generations before that by your great-great-grandmother. Which one do you think would more likely be in line with what your great-great-great-great-grandfather wrote to your great-great-great-great-grandmother? I was more nervous about that than any other part of the sermon this morning. Well, obviously, the older one would typically be more reliable. A second reason I say that uh, this passage wasn't originally in John is when it does appear in later manuscripts, it's not always in the same place. Sometimes you'll see it placed here after John chapter 7 verse 52. In other manuscripts, it's after John 7.36. In other manuscripts, it's after John 7.44. In some manuscripts, it's after John 21.25. And in other manuscripts, it's placed after Luke chapter 21, verse 38. Do you know what that's a sure sign of? That it was added. And the copyist didn't know where to put it. It was a text without a home. A text without a context. The third reason that I say I, I don't think that this was originally a part of the Gospel of John is that none of the church fathers or church leaders in the first thousand years of the church mention it in connection with John or any other Gospel. And these were guys who wrote commentaries and sermons on the entire Gospel of John and covered it all and commented on it all. But they never mentioned this. A fourth reason is because the language here is unlike the rest of the language in the Gospel of John. It's like somebody took over for a little while and wrote it besides the, the Apostle John. It's much more like the language in the Gospel of Luke. I'll give you one example. There are many, but I'll give you one. When we read the passage in just a moment, you'll see the phrase scribes and Pharisees. Now that's a common phrase in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's a phrase that occurs nowhere else in the Gospel of John. John always simply refers to them as the Pharisees. That's a clue. And then a fifth reason I say this wasn't originally a part of the Gospel of John is because the passage, this passage disrupts the flow from chapter 7, verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 12, it seems out of place. Because John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 are about the Feast of Tabernacles. And there were two big events that went on during the Feast of Tabernacles. One was pouring out water from a pitcher at the altar of God, and the second was the lighting of lamps. Well, before John chapter 7, verse 52, Jesus had just said, Come to me and drink. And he spoke of himself as the living water, salvation through the Spirit. 
as living water. Then in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And what he's doing in both of those passages is making reference to the two main events, the pouring out of the water and the lighting of the lamps. So they should be together, not separated. On top of that, in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it speaks of Jesus as being at the Mount of Olives, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke say happened during the last week of Jesus' life. Well, that was still six months away from where we are in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. So it fits much better with the context and the timeline of Luke 21, verses 37 and 38. So for these reasons, I say that this passage, this story, this message are non-biblical. And by that I mean not in the original Bible. But, I also say that while this passage and story are non-biblical, it is not unbiblical. By unbiblical, I mean contrary to the Bible. I am equally convinced that this story records an actual event from the life of Jesus. And Jesus was the living word of God. Whatever he spoke is therefore the word of God. A church historian by the name of Eusebius references a story very similar to this as early as the year 100. Now, he doesn't do it in connection with the Gospel of John or any other Gospel, but he mentions a story very similar. This story also appears in translations of Greek manuscripts from the 4th and 5th century. Some well-intentioned scribe probably added it to the written word because it had always been a part of the oral stories that had been passed down from the time of Jesus about the life of Jesus. On top of this, I would say that what it teaches us about Jesus doesn't contradict the way that he is elsewhere. It doesn't contradict anything that the Bible teaches for that matter. It lines up with the life of Jesus. It lines up with the person of Jesus. It lines up with the gospel. It lines up with the Bible. So it may be non-biblical, but it's not unbiblical. So I have for you this morning quickly a non-biblical but not unbiblical message let's read the story John 7:53 so each went to his house but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and don't he went to the temple complex again and all the people who were coming to him or all the people were coming to him He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Jesus is teaching in the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery to Jesus. The scribes were lawyers, not copyists of the Bible like I used it earlier, but here they were lawyers. And I don't mean like we think of lawyers. I mean lawyers in the sense they were experts in the law of God. They were the professional theologians and scholars of the Jewish world. The Pharisees were not a profession, but they were a religious slash political party. Pharisee means separated one. And they had separated themselves to the law of God, to observing meticulously the law of God, so much so that they had added a bunch of their laws to God's laws. They were always opposed to Jesus. When they bring this woman to Jesus, they reminded Jesus as if he needed to be reminded that according to the law, she was to be stoned. Well, you probably know that the seventh commandment forbade adultery. Jesus confirmed this in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he took it a step further. Included in the commandment against adultery, Jesus said, was also the sin of lust and the sin of remarriage after an illegitimate divorce. Illegitimate divorce would be for any other reason besides adultery or if you add 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment. In Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, it says the penalty for adultery for both parties involved was to be death. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, it specifically said that the penalty for an engaged woman, not yet officially married, an engaged woman committing adultery was to be not just death, but death by stoning. And so too was the man that would have been involved with this engaged woman in the affair to be stoned. Well, when they tell Jesus that she was to be stoned, it gives us probably insight into the fact that this wasn't a married woman, but an engaged woman. And I bring that up because you know what the typical age for a woman being engaged in Jewish culture 2,000 years ago was? About 13 or 14 years old. A young woman what we would call look I think most all of us would be very comfortable with this unless you're 13 years old with calling her a, a girl so they asked Jesus what he thought look at verse 6 they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him so they weren't concerned with the law of God were they they weren't concerned with the glory of God or with justice being done. They weren't concerned with the holiness and purity of God's people. 
They weren't concerned with their witness to the Gentiles. They definitely weren't concerned with the man who had committed adultery with her. They weren't even concerned with the sin of this woman. They were using her for their own purposes. And their own purposes were to trap Jesus and to use his answer as evidence against him in their plot to kill him. This wasn't the only time they attempted to trap Jesus. Luke eleven fifty three and 54 says, The scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose Jesus fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something that he said. They always were. So they asked him a question on one occasion about a woman who was married at different times to seven different brothers. Y'all remember that story? They all died before, so in the resurrection, whose wife would she be? Well, the Sadducees asked him that, and they really weren't interested in the answer to the question. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they wanted to make Jesus' teaching on the resurrection appear to be foolish. On another occasion, they asked him whether it was legal to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And if he had answered yes, he would have appeared to be sympathetic to the Romans and traitorous to the Jews. And if he had answered no, he would have appeared to be a revolutionary against the Roman government. On another occasion, they asked him about whether it was legal to heal on the Sabbath, whether it was okay to divorce for any reason. What was the greatest commandment? Not because they wanted to know, but because whatever he answered, they would point out the other ones that he left out. This question was probably the biggest trap that they ever set for Jesus. A real catch-22. Any answer that he gave would seemingly get him into trouble. If he said, we shouldn't stone her, then he comes off as being anti-Moses, anti-law anti-God, which was already a charge made against Jesus that he was abolishing the law. But if he said, let's stone her, then he would have come off as being against Rome because only Rome had the, the power to pronounce a capital sentence. He also would have come across as being Against the times, they didn't steal stone people for adultery in this time. It hadn't gone on in years. On top of this, Jesus, if he had said stone her, would have appeared to contradict everything that he came and taught, that he was merciful to people. What made this question so difficult was the apparent irreconcilable dichotomy between justice and grace. Between the law and mercy, the law and forgiveness. Well, right off the bat, I hope you noticed that there were problems with this trap. The first one being, where was the man? Ladies, can I get an amen from the congregation? Why is it always the ladies, historically, that have been the ones set aside for bearing the brunt of sexual immorality? Are we to suppose that he was just faster than the woman and got away? Maybe we're to suppose that they were chauvinist. 
and they didn't want him, they just wanted her, I'll tell you what we probably can assume, that he was involved in the plot against her, and that's why he was let go. Second problem with the trap is how did they catch her? According to the law of God, to punish someone for the sin of adultery, you had to catch them in the act. Not, we saw them coming out of a room by themselves together. Not they've been hanging out alone together. You had to catch them in the act. Now I ask you, what are the odds of them doing that apart from it being a setup? The third issue with the trap Why were they all of a sudden so concerned with carrying out the demands of God's law? They hadn't done it in years. They were very selective and self-serving. It shows their hardened hearts. I'll tell you what it shows. That they were utterly heartless. That they would ruin and take this young girl's life who was probably seduced. All for the sake of winning against Jesus. Jesus responded to them by writing in the dirt. Really responded by not responding. We don't know what he wrote. I'll tell you what, it's not for a lack of speculation though. Everybody from all times has guessed what he wrote, but it doesn't say it must not be that important. They kept after him until he answered, and we see his answer in verse 7. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. How about that for an answer? Brilliant. I mean, Houdini-like brilliant. He upheld God's law while at the same time upholding grace and mercy. He even upheld the Roman law. He exposed their sin, their sinfulness, their own falling short of the standards and commands of God. He exposed their unworthiness to judge her. He exposed their hypocrisy. And I want us all to understand that this is not an indictment against all dealing with sin. It's not an indictment against all judging. It's not an indictment against administering discipline among God's people because that's commanded many times elsewhere and you don't have to be perfect to do it. It's an indictment of hypocritical, self-righteous judging. Like here. Like Matthew 7, 1 through 5 where Jesus said, don't judge so that you won't be judged. For with the measure that you use to judge, it will be used against you. Why then do you say to your brother, hey, you have a speck in your eye, while you have a log in your own? Why don't you first remove the log from your own eye so that then you'll be able to help your brother remove the speck from his? Romans 2.1 says, any of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, and since you, the judge, do the same things. Jesus put the ball in their court, and he trapped them. I mean, he full court presses them here. With the demands of the law. Deuteronomy 13, 9 and 17, 7 said, If someone was a witness in a capital case, 
that they had to be the first one to throw the stones. That would discourage you from lying in a capital case if you had to be the one to pull the plug. Jesus then went back to riding in the dirt. The scribes and the Pharisees, they left. One by one. Starting with the oldest, and let's assume from this the wisest. Wisest in the sense that maybe they were the first to recognize their own sin. And on top of that, they were the first to realize they had been whooped. John MacArthur has said, ironically, those who came to put Jesus to shame left ashamed. Those who came to condemn the woman and Jesus went away condemned. The only ones left were Jesus and the woman. And he asked her, has no one condemned you? That is, has no one declared you guilty? Has no one passed sentence? And her answer to Jesus was, no one, Lord. My accusers are gone, Lord. Now, Lord, there is a common greeting, a common title for men. But maybe it was more. Hopefully, it was more. Jesus then said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. Neither do I condemn you. How sweet do you think those words sounded to this young woman? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus could have condemned her, right? He was certainly qualified. He was worthy. And she was guilty. But he chose not to. He chose to forgive her. Chose to set her free and let her go. He chose to extend grace and mercy to her. And I'm talking about pure grace and mercy. Free grace and mercy. Which is what true grace and mercy are. Pure and free. I say that because there's no mention of her asking for this. There's no mention of her doing anything towards this end. Jesus did it. Maybe he even saved her. Hopefully, and I would argue from the text, probably Jesus saved her. But his words didn't end with forgiveness. You know what they ended with? A command. A demand. His words ended with the way that she was to respond to the forgiveness with what her responsibility was now that she had been forgiven. In verse 11, the last part, Jesus said, Go, and from now on do not sin anymore. You know what that means. Don't live like you've been living. You don't have to. Change your behavior. Turn from your sin. You can. Jesus here freed her not only from the penalty of sin, 
but he also freed her from the power of sin in her life. He didn't ignore her sin. He forgave it. And he could because he was God. God can forgive sin. He also could because he would go to the cross and he would pay for it. He didn't condone or encourage her sin. He condemned it, doesn't he? He condemned sin here. Turn from it. Don't live that way anymore. But while he condemned her sin, praise God he didn't condemn her. What a fantastic choice from the life of Jesus. I, I can see why it's been passed on and preserved. What do we learn from it? I'll give you four lessons in four sentences. That's it. First, we are all sinners. Whether like this woman in immorality or like these religious leaders in our hypocrisy and self-righteousness, we're all sinners. Lesson number two. Jesus reconciles the law and grace. Jesus reconciles justice and forgiveness for he can condemn sin and forgive it at the same time and we see him doing it on the cross where the grace and mercy of God meet. Lesson number three. Grace demands and produces a changed life. If it doesn't, that one hasn't experienced grace. And lesson number four, you can't beat Jesus. You can't trap Jesus. Nor trick him, nor fool him, nor accuse him, nor shame him, nor condemn him. Jesus always wins, and he's already won. And the only way that we can win is through acknowledging our sinfulness and turning to him in faith that he will forgive and make us righteous and give us eternal life. And that's as quickly as I can say those four lessons. you got to know I was itching to share all I had about them with you. Four lessons great lesson all in a non-biblical but not unbiblical message now how does God want you to respond this morning how does God want you to respond you do it let's pray thank you father for this time that we've had together Thank you for the preservation of your word and the preservation of this story. Thank you that we can have confidence that it's an actual event from the life of Jesus. And that the words that it records are the very word of Christ. Help us to respond to what we've heard in the way that you want. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And again, I pray and thank you that there is no condemnation for those in Christ.
for those who aren't in Christ, I pray that you would work to make that happen. Through your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.